It's Tuesday, April 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's all hands on deck to fight coronavirus, and the U.S. Army's top virus research lab is also helping out with the effort. The U.S. Army Institute of Infectious Diseases is working on the long-term game to help beat COVID-19. They are working on animal models to test possible treatments, and also working on screening antibodies that could be used to make a universal vaccine. Eric Nealer, contributor to Wired, joins us for how U.S. Amarid is helping out. Next, as some are starting to recover from COVID-19, they face an uncertain road back to normal. The guidelines vary on when someone can return to their normal pre-quarantine lives. But generally, you want to be symptom-free for at least three days and have two consecutive negative tests, although those can be hard to come by in quick fashion. Daniela Hernandez, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for when someone can be considered well again. Finally, something to watch out for in getting tested and seeing a doctor during this pandemic, unforeseen medical bills. While you might not get charged for the test itself, you might not want to go to the emergency room. Some in-network emergency rooms could be staffed with doctors from private companies. Emery Huderman, correspondent for Kaiser Health News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. First of all, the animal model is vital because if you cannot properly kind of mimic or forecast what's going to happen in the human body with an animal with a vaccine, then you can't really show that it's going to work. Joining us now is Eric Nealer, contributor to Wired. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Great to be with you today. There's labs all across the world that are in this fight to find some way to fight back on COVID-19, the coronavirus. And one in particular, the U.S. Army Institute of Infectious Diseases is also on the case. It's the U.S. Army's top virus research lab. Eric, tell us a little bit about what they're doing trying to find ways to combat this. From my understanding, one of their main tasks is to develop an animal model which can be used for possible treatments. That's right. So they're not actually doing the vaccine there right now, but what they're doing is kind of laying the groundwork a couple of different ways. First of all, the animal model is vital because if you cannot properly kind of mimic or forecast what's going to happen in the human body with an animal with a vaccine, then you can't really show that it's going to work. Not all animals will take this virus or be infected by the virus or be protected by a a potential vaccine the way humans do. So there's a lot of work going on right now with different animal models, animal species that are used in these epidemiological studies. They're going through all kinds of them right now. They're also working on how much exposure of a virus is needed for infection, but also how much of a vaccine is needed to protect. How quickly does this travel through the air? How quickly does it travel uh, the vaccine through a bloodstream, for example? So these are real important sort of tedious laboratory studies that have to be done before the vaccines are ready to go. We've talked previously on the podcast about the vaccines, and it's going to take a long time, up to a year, people say. And the slowest part of it is the testing in humans. But this is like the long game right here. This is the animal models so that they can see how things are working, then they can test it on the humans. This is the long game right here, because it's tough to know what's going on when you hear a lot of stuff, the FDA speeding up human trials of certain drugs, different things like that. This is the long game right here. This is what we're hoping will protect us 
years and years down the road from this. Give us a little bit of background on the U.S. Army Institute of Infectious Diseases. How did they get started? What have they worked on in the past? This came out of sort of a classified lab back in the 1960s that worked for the Pentagon on biodefense weapons and biowarfare. It evolved to a kind of a hybrid civilian and military lab in the 70s that was really designed not for offensive weapons and this sort of thing, which were banned, but to come up with treatments for all of the soldiers and sailors and Marines around the world are deployed in some really amazing hostile environments. And so they've also been battling things like Rift Valley fever, equine encephalitis, Japanese encephalitis, malaria. They've worked on all sorts of things like this. More recently, they came up with an Ebola vaccine treatment. They did all the animal model work. All of the studies were conducted there that they just licensed to Merck last year. So USAMRID has a long history of working on emerging diseases, emerging viruses, and finding ways to defeat them. They expect that by the summertime, they're going to have more than 100 military and civilian scientists and lab technicians working on the coronavirus effort. So there's still a little bit of time to ramp up for this. So what are the next steps for them? They're going to look for these animal models. And then what else are they working on? Well, they're also working on developing what are called assays or tests. For example, if you have either in an animal or a human, you have to know if that experiment is working. So you have to take samples of amounts of a virus or viral load in the body. So they're developing these little chemical assays that help determine what's happening. They're also culturing the virus. They got a, about 10 drops of blood from one of the very first coronavirus patients in the United States, a guy from Washington State. They took that blood, they were sent it by the uh, CDC in Atlanta, and just with that small amount, they've had enough of the virus that they can basically grow it. So they've been growing the coronavirus and then sharing it with other labs. So it's like a factory or farm for the coronavirus in one of their highly protected contained labs there at Fort Detrick in Maryland. And they're also working on ways to identify antibodies. I've been hearing a lot about this part of testing people for antibodies. It shows that you might have had it, that you're over it, and you're kind of on the other side of it, basically. Uh, You don't have to be worried about necessarily being out in public things. I I hear that this is kind of the next wave of testing and stuff, but this is something also that they're working on? Both at USAMRID and a sister laboratory called the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research that's in Silver Spring, Maryland, about 40 miles away. They're working on different tests at both places to determine if you've been exposed and whether your body has naturally developed these antibodies. Maybe you haven't even gotten sick. This is really, like you said, this is the way forward. This is how we're going to ensure that people can return to work, that our society can really return to normal as we've known that people have a natural protection against it. Without these kind of tests that are being done here, the development of these tests that are accurate and proven and scientific, our society just is not going to get back on its feet. Eric Naylor, contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. They're being advised to stay in quarantine and home isolation for an average of about 14 days. 
But the caveat there is that you have to be free of symptoms, fever and cough included, for at least 72 hours. Joining us now is Daniela Hernandez, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Daniela. Thanks for having me. Continue our coverage of coronavirus and The question has kind of been interesting to me as more and more people have gotten it. They're starting to recover. What is it like getting back to normal? When can you be considered well enough to stop self-isolating? Maybe go back to work if you still can. There's a lot of questions and the guidelines are kind of all over the place depending where you live. So, Danielle, tell us a little bit about that. What do we know about when you can be considered well enough? That seems to vary depending on where you live, what you do for work. So we spoke to a variety of patients, all with mild COVID, meaning they did not have to be hospitalized, put on oxygen, put on ventilators. So these are people who are recovering at home, some with pretty constant contact with their doctors over the phone or video chat. And so they're being advised to stay in quarantine and home isolation for an average of about 14 days. But the caveat there is that you have to be free of symptoms, fever and cough included, for at least 72 hours. And so if you're past your quarantine period of 14 days, sometimes 10, as we say in the story, but you're still feeling kind of achy and icky and you have a cough, they advise you to stay put. And that was the case for one of the patients that we talked to. She just finished actually her quarantine period. She was advised at 10 days, but she's still not feeling great. And so she's continuing home isolation until she's feeling better. And so then we spoke to another patient in Australia, a healthcare worker. And for her, the criteria were a lot more strict. And so she had to be symptom-free for 24 hours before then she was eligible to take another diagnostic test to tell you whether you have the virus or not. And she had to test negative twice before she could be released. And that's really right there is the gold standard is the two consecutive negative tests. But as we've been hearing about, especially here in the United States right now, the testing right now is so uneven. It takes a long time to get results back. It's hard to even go by that. So you're kind of in this gray area, just having to play off of your symptoms, the way you feel personally. And just from talking to a lot of people, reading a lot of stuff, fatigue, the fatigue part of this is what lingers beyond even some of the main symptoms. So, I mean, it's just almost impossible to tell unless you get the two consecutive negative tests. So one of the patients that we spoke to said that, you know, he was out biking again, which is his preferred form exercise. Right now, maybe his only one since the gyms, I think, where he lives are also closed as they are here in the U.S., and he feels more tired, like his energy levels aren't what he used to be, even though his other symptoms have subsided. And another really interesting and important thing to keep in mind is that a lot of this revolves around symptoms, but people experience symptoms very differently. Some of us have a very high tolerance than others. And so what might feel like a bad cough to you might not be to another person. And, and sometimes the symptoms are so mild that they're imperceptible. So there's a lot of asymptomatic patients out there who have no idea that they're sick and they may or may not be quarantining or self-isolating as a result. And so that's why here in the U.S., the mask guidelines have gone into effect because even people who are trying to be as conscientious as they can, they may be harboring the virus and shedding it and spreading it to other people without knowing it. 
Another thing that scientists are trying to figure out is when does a person become contagious? And then almost as importantly, when do they stop being contagious? Because just because you don't have symptoms doesn't mean that you're not releasing virus into the environment and potentially infecting other people. Because the virus is so new, some of those details aren't yet very well understood. Yeah, and you were talking about people that are asymptomatic. As many as 25% of infected people in the United States may be asymptomatic. And these people can test positive for the virus almost a month after initial exposure. It's kind of different for everyone. So the CDC has set these guidelines, as you were mentioning earlier, fever-free for at least 72 hours without taking any fever-reducing drugs. Symptoms like cough and shortness of breath have to have improved, and at least seven days have passed since these symptoms first appeared. But you're doing two weeks, you still feel crummy after that. It's just so hard to gauge what to do. And especially as we started off talking about, if you want to return to work or be around other people, how do you even tell? I mean, it seems like you got to give it three weeks or so before you can even start operating like normal. In some cases, doctors are advising longer than 14 days. But as we say in the story, these questions are really hard even for physicians to answer because the data on the virus is pretty scant, all things considered, especially when we compare it to other diseases that we have centuries sometimes experience with them. And so it's a really hard call to make. The doctors that I spoke to said, yes, the testing is definitely the gold standard. But as we said, it is sort of spotty at the moment. And so we have to deal with this in different ways. Anecdotally, obviously, you know, we're not medical professionals on this. In the people, right. in the people that you talk to, what was the quickest time that somebody felt good enough to get back to normal? And what was the longest time that people took? The sicker you are, the longer it is your road to recovery is going to be. If you're in the hospital, sometimes you can be on a ventilator for more than 10, 14 days, right? Much longer than people were seeing for other kinds of conditions that require a ventilator. Those people are obviously going to take a lot longer to recover, to get off the ventilators, and then to make their road back to normal. For some of the patients that I spoke to for this story, the ones with milder COVID, it took about two weeks. One of them is entering her third week, I think. So it really varies by person. The doctors that I spoke to said that rest and hydration were really important in keeping yourself as well as possible and making the recovery process faster. Daniela Hernandez, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. People were getting bills that they didn't expect, in particular from, say, an out-of-network provider at an in-network hospital. You think that your insurance covers the emergency room you're walking into? It turns out that the emergency room doctor might not be contracted with your insurer, even if the hospital is. Joining us now is Emery Hudeman, correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thanks for joining us, Emery. My pleasure. You wrote an interesting article, something that I had been very curious about with all that was going on with coronavirus and COVID-19. We'd been talking a lot about ramping up tests. People need to get out and get tested and, and see if they have it, all that, and talking to doctors and all this. The cost associated with this is something I was very concerned about. And we know that the president signed a law that ensures Americans wouldn't be charged for testing. They can get the test for free. But there's a lot of other costs associated with this in-network, out-of-network costs that could be incurred. So tell us a little bit about that. So this goes right to the heart of a big issue in American healthcare before the coronavirus pandemic even hit us, and that's the issue of price transparency in healthcare, surprise medical bills. 
This got a lot of attention in recent years because people were getting bills that they didn't expect, in particular from, say, an out-of-network provider at an in-network hospital. You think that your insurance covers the emergency room you're walking into. It turns out that the emergency room doctor might not be contracted with your insurer, even if the hospital is. So basically what we started to ask questions about was, okay, if you say that tests for coronavirus are going to be free for the consumer or for the patient, what does that look like? And it turns out that the test might be free. And according to the law, the test and its related services are supposed to be free, but there's a lot of leeway for people to end up with big medical bills that they don't expect out of this. And one of the interesting parts of this is that a lot of this is happening in ERs, in the emergency room. And everybody knows that costs are a lot bigger there. You spoke to a guy who kind of went through this whole thing. Thankfully, he never tested positive for coronavirus, but he went and got tested a couple times. He had to go to the ER and his costs now are about $2,000. He was someone who looked at the coronavirus test as something that he didn't necessarily think he needed until he was actually contacted by some hospital officials who said, we need you to come in. We're concerned that you have it. And he said, you know what, I heard that the test was going to be free and I felt this was my responsibility to my community. I don't want to dangerously expose anyone. And so he went in and took the test and he ended up with these medical bills as a result. And tell us about the costs incurred. Like, obviously, we don't have an itemized sheet or anything like this, but what kind of costs did he get? So he ended up with some costs for things like facilities fees things that you would pay as a result of just walking into an ER. And a lot of those set provider fees as well. Basically, the things that make up those explanations of benefits that you get from your insurer, they give you a list of all these items that you don't necessarily identify all of them. But he had facilities fees, doctor's fees, like I said, things that are supposed to be related to testing. But when it comes to these kinds of charges, it's actually up to the providers, billers, and coders who get to determine what is a related charge. And so it seems like at the very least, either because of the confusion or because of loopholes in the law, it looks like he might end up with some pretty high medical bills from this. And even people that aren't really going through this, they might have other illnesses. It's a possibility that their doctor or their hospital could be overwhelmed with patients experiencing symptoms from COVID-19. And they might even get charged here or there because of you know other things that they have to go through. That's a really good point. And actually, that's one thing that lawmakers on Capitol Hill were really concerned about when they said we have to do something about surprise medical bills. We're in an era right now where if you try to go to your healthcare facility, you might find that eventually you're turned away because your hospital is so overwhelmed by coronavirus patients that even if you've got an emergency, it might be an unrelated emergency and you're sent to a hospital that you've never been to before, that you have no idea if your insurance covers or not. So surprise medical bills were one of those things that were really, really concerned about going into a medical crisis crisis on this scale in, in particular. So what do we do? Let's say we are coming down with some symptoms. We fear we might have this. We're, we want to get tested. Is there anything that we can do to look out for beforehand so that we're not getting any of these surprise bills later? There are a few things you can do, and unfortunately, they don't totally inoculate you from surprise bills, but you cannot go to an ER for your coronavirus test because ERs are kind of one of the biggest offenders when it comes to surprise medical bills. And a lot of people end up with big bills just from walking in the door. Go to one of those drive-up sites, for instance. You at least might not see that facility fee coming on your bill. And I know that they are ramping up those other alternate testing sites. So something to look into in case, hopefully you don't, but in case you have to go through that avenue. Absolutely. We're in this time where people are really concerned for their health and safety. They want to do the right thing. I hope the best for everyone. Emery Huderman, correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.